Well, today we're continuing our, our study of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and we're on uh, question 36 today. Um, we're going to look at a couple of other review questions, too. If you need a catechism, they're on the uh, table there in the back, and you're welcome to get one. Uh, also, if you've got one of the handouts that's beside the, the Psalters, and it has the catechism questions we're doing today. We're continuing to look at the benefits that we have in this life from the redemption that we have in Christ. This is summarized for us in question 32. So let's confess question 32 together as we get underway here. Question 32. What benefits do they that are effectually called partake of in this life? They that are effectually called do in this life partake of justification, adoption, and sanctification, and the several benefits which in this life do either accompany or flow from them. We've completed our study now of the primary benefits, justification, adoption, and sanctification. And last week, we began looking at the secondary benefits and uh, which in this life do accompany or flow from them, as the Catechism says. Question 36 is the question that lists these five benefits out for us. So let's confess question 36 together. Question 36, what are the benefits which in this life do accompany or flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification? The benefits which in this life do accompany or flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification are assurance of God's love, peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Ghost, increase of grace, and perseverance therein to the end. Now last week we looked at the first of these secondary benefits, the assurance of God's love. We saw from John's first epistle that God's love toward his people is in particular, in particular manifested in sending his son to atone for our sins. It is an act of uncomparable, incomprehensible love that he should have gone to such extreme lengths to save those who are hostile sinners toward him. We further saw in 1 John that we can have assurance that we are God's people who receive his love if we have two marks. First, that we trust in Jesus, believing that he is God's son sent from heaven and that we trust in him alone for salvation. That's the first mark. And then the second, that we love one another, which we will certainly do if we are truly among those who have received the Father's love. And John says, how can anyone say that they know him if they don't have that love? Then we looked at what a blessing it is to have the assurance of God's love. It causes us to have a tremendous admiration for God when we see his great love. It causes us to trust him, to hope in him, to have a greater love for one another as we begin to live out that love in the community a desire to testify of God's love when we it's something that we cherish, we want to talk about it. It enables you to be patient with others and it enables you to freely confess your sin and to love God. So the more our assurance of God's love grows, 
the more those benefits grow. And that's what we saw last week. Today, we're going to look at the secondary benefit, or I should say the second secondary benefit, which is peace of conscience. For our scripture reading, I've selected a passage where Paul testifies that peace of conscience is something that he strives constantly to maintain. In this passage, he has been brought before the Jewish governor, Felix, by the high priest and the elders of the Jews to be charged with stirring up division among the Jews by preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in his defense, he maintains that though these are accusing him of wrongdoing, that he sought always to maintain a conscience without offense before God and man. Though men may accuse him, he sought to do nothing for which his conscience might accuse him. Surely this is what every person ought to do. How different the world would be if everyone did that. If everyone lived earnestly to follow their own conscience. Listen as I read this account to you from Acts 24, 1 through 21, from God's holy word. Acts 24. Now after five days, Ananias the high priest came down with the elders and a certain orator named Tertullus. These gave evidence to the governor against Paul. And when he was called upon, Tertullus began his accusation, saying, Seeing that through you we enjoy great peace and prosperity in being brought to this nation by your foresight, we accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. Nevertheless, not to be tedious to you any further, I beg you to hear by your courtesy a few words from us. For we have found this man a plague, a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world, and throughout among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, and we seized him and wanted to judge him according to our law. But the commander Lysias came came by and with great violence took him out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come to you. By examining him, your By examining him yourself, you may ascertain all these things of which we accuse him. And the Jews also assented, maintaining that these things were so. Then Paul, after the governor had nodded to him to speak, answered, Inasmuch as I know that you have been for many years a judge of this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself, because you may ascertain that it is no more than twelve days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship. And they neither found me in the temple disputing with anyone, nor inciting the crowd, either in the synagogues or in the city, nor can they prove the things of which they now accuse me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. Now, after many years, I came to bring alms and offerings to my nation. 
and in the midst of which some of the Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with a mob nor with tumult. They ought to have been here before you to object if they had anything against me. Or else let those who are here themselves say if they found any wrongdoing in me while I stood before the council. Unless it is for this one statement which I cried out standing among them. Concerning the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged by you this day. There we end the reading of God's word. May the Lord add his blessing to his holy word. You can see from verse 16 that Paul greatly prized what the catechism calls peace of conscience and what he calls a conscience without offense. He says that he always strives, he labors or exercises to have such a conscience. It is a benefit that those who are redeemed are able to enjoy. It is something worth striving for. And there is a sense in which we could say that anyone who truly did strive to have a conscience void of offense would come to a knowledge of the truth if they were an unbeliever. And they sincerely sought that because the Bible says that anyone who seeks finds. It also says that no one seeks after God unless the Holy Spirit draws them. But uh, if someone really did seek to find God, to know God, and to follow their conscience doing so, then we could say that they would come to a knowledge of the truth. So, so let's begin with the question, what is peace of conscience or a conscience without offense? Well, you all know what the conscience is. It's the part of you that accuses you when you do something that you know is wrong and the part of you that supports you when you do something that you know is right. It's like a neighbor in the neighborhood of your inner self that sees what you're doing and that gets offended when you do wrong. It does some complaining when you lie or cheat or if you're a student when you don't do your homework, or when you pretend that you're too busy to help someone when you're really not, when you don't take time to pray and to read God's word, then you have some effect in their conscience. It can also get stirred up when somebody else points out sin in your life. Your conscience will join that person in protesting against you. Even if with your lips you're denying and defending yourself, the conscience is with that person that has, has pointed out something legitimate to you. So you have accusation on the inside and on the outside coming at you. But uh, it can also defend you sometimes when someone comes accusing you and you know in your conscience that you have not done anything wrong. So it will sometimes accuse and sometimes defend you. The word conscience is an interesting word. The word con means with or together with. And of course, science means knowledge. So in Greek, it is also a compound word with the same meaning. So we would say that the conscience is that in you which is with knowledge. It is with what is true when you are being false. Now, of course, we can talk about ourselves in a divided way like that. We all understand what that means. Like when Paul says, I desire to do good, but the, the evil that uh, I don't want to do, I do. But the good that I want to do, I do not do. But the evil that I hate, that I do. Uh, we know that, that very thing. 
So when you lie, you wanted to tell a lie for some reason, but your conscience knows the truth and it objects to telling a lie. That's why lie detector tests will even work because there's a, there's a, little, a little response there when, when people lie. It knows when you pretend not to hear when you're called. It's with the truth and not with your pretending. It knows when you keep putting off a duty. It is with the truth. And uh, you, need to, you need to go on and, and, and do whatever it is that the conscience tells you. You need to go on and do what it is, that, this duty that you have. Everybody has a conscience. And we very well know that we have a conscience. We experience it. We all experience it and we all appeal to other people's consciences when we deal with them just in everyday life. When someone has wronged us, we appeal to their conscience so that they will see that they have wronged us. This is a useful thing. Parents appeal to their children's consciences to help their children face the wrongs that they have done and that they don't want to admit. And when you witness to unbelievers, you appeal to their consciences. You know that you have not honored God. You know that you have not loved God as you should. And we're called to do so. You know that there is a God, that you have suppressed the truth about that, that you've sinned against God. God made us moral beings. And though we often behave wickedly, and though unbelievers will sometimes even try to deny morality, Romans 2, 14 and 15 reminds us that these same persons become very moral when they believe someone has wronged them. <laughs> and that's the funny thing about it. People say there's no morality but then when anybody does wrong with them, they tell other people, well, see what they did to me? I can't believe they did that to me. And you're supposed to agree with them. It's a, it's a peculiar thing. But what the scripture says in Romans 2.14 is, for when the Gentiles who do not have the law, okay, they don't have the written law, by nature do the things in the law, these, although not, not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. Perhaps you have spoken to someone about the Lord, and when you bring up sin, they have told you that you know, they don't believe in moral absolutes, yet this is not true. You know, A few days later, when uh, the boss doesn't give them the bonus that the boss had promised them, they accuse him of wrongdoing, and they expect you to agree with that. They say, he, he used that bonus money to take a special vacation instead of giving it to me. And you're supposed to say, oh, that's so wrong. But you say, well, wait a minute. You said you didn't believe that there was right and wrong and moral rights and wrongs. So what do you mean? <laughs> of course it is wrong. But uh, if they say there's no right and wrong, they're being inconsistent. So, you know, you know why could the boss not do whatever he wanted with that money? Why did he have to keep a promise? What would be the reason for that? So we all know what it is to have a conscience. We all have one. And having seen what a conscience is, it's easy to see what a conscience without offense is. It's a conscience that doesn't find anything wrong in what you're doing. This is the same as peace of conscience. You're at peace with your conscience. It's not wrestling with you and hostile toward you when you have peace of conscience your conscience is not disturbed by what you're doing or not doing it's at peace with your thoughts with your actions and with your words 
Even if someone accuses you the way that they were accusing Paul in the passage I read, if you have peace of conscience, your conscience is not offended within you. And it makes you consistently bold in defending yourself. They were accusing Paul of preaching falsehood when he preached about Jesus, and they were accusing him of stirring up division. But Paul's conscience did not agree with their lies. Even though they were constantly blaming him, he had peace within. He had peace of conscience. Incidentally, a disturbed conscience is one of the biggest problems in our society. There are a lot of people that are doing things they know are wrong, and they're going around with this inner turmoil and this unrest. It has a bad effect on people. You can spot them because they're always very touchy, very easily offended. As soon as anyone as much as hints that they might be doing something wrong, their conscience starts complaining on the inside and they feel lots of pressure and they lash out at you for even hinting that they were doing something wrong. When you see somebody with an anger problem, that's often the case. I've seen people who are feeling convicted about the claims of Jesus Christ complain that a very mild-mannered Christian in their family, very very gentle, mild-mannered person, is always trying to cram the gospel down their throat every, every time they see them. And the person has hardly ever even spoken to them about the Lord. But it's a disturbed conscience that is causing that kind of a response. And sometimes the anger is not directly related. The person with a bad conscience is unhappy and miserable, and they behave badly. Many times when little children are whiny and defiant about everything, it's because their parents are not dealing with their bad behavior. We need to teach our children to love to have their conscience relieved. That it's a good thing to have their to be to repent of their sin and to go and do what's right. That it's a freeing thing, a liberating thing. Of course, we need to believe that ourselves and to practice that. Their conscience is screaming at them instead of their parents relieving them from a guilty conscience by leading them to repentance. The child is left to stew with that that unsettledness and unrest. This is a recipe for a downward spiral. Because when they have that unrest, their behavior is going to get worse. And then their conscience will be more more offended and disturbed, and that will lead to more bad behavior. If you have an anger problem in your own life, you might want to check your conscience. What makes you, people say, I don't have any control, I just lash out at people when these things happen. Well, maybe maybe you've got a bad conscience going on there. A bad conscience also causes anxiety and depression. When you're doing things that you know are wrong, or you're not doing things that you know you ought to be doing, it can make you very agitated and even fearful. You're afraid you'll be found out. You're you're unsettled because there's no peace inside of you. There are documented cases of people who have dealt with their sin and been freed up from all sorts of anxiety disorders. Uh, There was a psychologist, actually, that did studies of this where he would... He would examine people and find out what things they had done. And a lot of them were released from institutions just by admitting the wrongs that they had done and dealing with it and making it right. And guilt can make you shut down and not feel like doing anything. It can make you simply feel bummed out with life because it's quite miserable to go around with a defiled conscience. It can drain the life out of you. Once again, 
There are documented cases of persons with severe depression who have been completely delivered simply by dealing with very simple things like duties that they were not fulfilling every day that they knew they were not fulfilling and saying, I can't do it because I'm depressed and I can't. And, and it just goes deeper and deeper than simply starting to, to do those things. They, they're, they're fully brought out. And of course, all the stress from a bad conscience can also break your health. A bad conscience is one of the chief causes of stress. When you're stressed out, it obviously weakens your immune system and you get sick and you get tired easier. You know that even cold weather, you go out in the cold and it tires you more and it stresses your body more just from the, your body striving to keep warm and, and not in the cold and you, we get sick more. All this can lead to more serious complications like heart disease and, and allergies and, and even things like cancer. Your body is not, is not functioning well. I recently read about a woman with severe allergies that were often brought on when she was under stress who was cured from her allergies when she came to the Lord and attained peace of conscience. Very interesting. Now, of course, I'm not saying that a bad conscience is the source of all sickness. I'm saying it is a contributor to sickness. It's just as a strong contributing factor that is very often ignored, not only by medical practitioners, but also by ministers. But as we think about the conscience, it should be noted that the conscience can itself be messed up and out of whack. Conscience is not in itself perfect or pristine. First of all, it can be completely mistaken about right and wrong. In John 16, 2, Jesus told his disciples that some of the people who persecuted them would think that they were actually doing the right thing. So they were following their conscience. They would, he said, they will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. You see, your conscience only deals with you when you do something that you believe to be wrong. But if your beliefs are wrong, then your conscience is going to be wrong. So you can have peace of conscience even though you're doing something reprehensible because you think that you're doing the right thing. Paul says that that was the situation with him. He was one of those people that was going around imprisoning and murdering Christians because he thought they were spreading falsehood among the people of God. And he was fulfilling the duty, the God-given duty that he had to suppress that. And then he realized that he was wrong. He said, I did it ignorantly and in unbelief. Your conscience can also tell you that it's wrong to do something that God has not forbidden. It can be wrong in that way. For example, there are many Christians who think that drinking wine or beer is sinful. And some people think that sexual relations in marriage is kind of sinful. That it's not, not quite a right thing to do, something that you should sort of avoid. And some who think that eating meat during Lent is sinful or something like that. Your conscience can be misinformed. But these things are not sinful in themselves. The person's conscience is misinformed and it needs to be corrected. Now I might mention that Romans 14 teaches us that if we think that something is wrong, we shouldn't do it. If you think it's wrong, you, 
You shouldn't mess with your conscience, but you might need to have your conscience informed and corrected. So a conscience can be misinformed. Secondly, your conscience can be asleep, or at least it can be very sluggish. If you ignore it all the time and you give it painkillers, it will kind of curl up and go to sleep very easily. You all know what it is to ignore your conscience in such a way that it gets sleepy. I'm sure you do. I remember when I was in university, I started doing some things that I knew were not quite right. And I ignored my conscience. Things like foul language. When I started using it, my conscience was talking to me. It let me know that I was doing wrong. But when I did more, my conscience stopped protesting as much. Wasn't doing any good anyway. And after a while, it pretty much went to sleep. Once in a while, it would wake up a little bit, but then it would go back to sleep again. You can also numb your conscience with drugs. Some people drink excessively or take drugs to ease their conscience. And it does put their consciences to sleep. There is an account of a minister that about uh, uh, that he, he has a diary of different uh, people that he had dealt with. And there was a farmer that... Uh, was the husband of uh, a woman that went to his church who was a faithful believer. And this man, this farmer, would come to church sometimes with his wife and he would listen and he always had a respect for Christianity. But he, he never quite could come to a real conviction of sin and, and, turn, to, uh, and, and turn to the Lord. So um, this, uh, this, this, this farmer uh, one day was coming home from haven't been out at the market. He was, this is in the old days. He had a wagon and stuff, so he was coming along. And the minister noticed that he had a big jug of, uh, of, of liquor of some kind, wine or something or another. And he knew this farmer wasn't a drunkard. He, you know, he was a hardworking man and everything. But he said, uh, you know, what do you got there? And he told him what it was. He said, I just like to have a sip of it sometimes when I start to uh, kind of feel troubled. And... Uh, the minister talked to him a little bit and realized that whenever this man's conscience started to bother him, he would just take just a little drink or two, and then he would feel better. And uh, he told him that uh, that bottle is the reason, that jug is the reason that you're not coming to the Lord. And the man took it right then and there and smashed it on the rock. And then about three weeks later, he came to the Lord. He was using, in other words, to deal with his conscience. He was using drink in the wrong way to ease his conscience so that he was not troubled. So this, is a, uh, th- this can be a, a way of putting the conscience to sleep. Modern psychologists today have a terrible habit of giving people drugs when their problem is actually a guilty conscience. And those drugs also numb the conscience. And when that is the cause of the problem, often left completely unexplored, then it causes the anxiety and the anger and the depression and all these things. And then that gets better because the conscience is not numbed, but the problem itself is not dealt with. The sin is not dealt with. Thirdly, a conscience can be seared. This is a very serious condition that comes about when a person tramples on his conscience, deliberately violating it, until it loses its ability to speak to you anymore. In 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2, Paul says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith, 
giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies in hypocrisy. So in other words, they're actually speaking lies that they don't really believe and promoting lies that they do not really believe. Like maybe they know that Jesus is real, that he's the Savior, that he wrought miracles, and they say, no, he didn't. He didn't. He was, he's, he's a deceiver and he's leading people astray. He says, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. Now this is saying that the conscience can be like the skin that's been seared by an iron so that it has no feeling left. You can put seared skin in a hot stove or uh, onto a hot stove or you can uh, cut it with a blade and not know it because uh, you see until you see the smoke and the blood. So it is with a seared conscience. You can do harmful, destructive things and not even be aware of it anymore. It's a dreadful condition. And now, having learned something about the conscience, I want you to look at an important question. How are you and your conscience getting along these days? Is your conscience distressed? Or is it at peace with you? Is it offended? Or is it pleased? Are you treating it well? Honoring it? Listening to it? Obeying it? Or are you pushing it away? And if so, where are you pushing it away? You ought to treat it well. Your conscience itself will surely tell you that. Isn't that something that anyone would have to agree with? That if you believe you ought to do something in your conscience, you ought to do it. And if you, on the other hand, you believe something to be wrong, it goes against your conscience, then of course you ought not to do it. Indeed, it would be a very hardened person who would say that it is good to go against their conscience. The Holy Scriptures instruct you that even if you are uncertain as to whether it even might be sinful, like to eat meat or something like that, then you shouldn't violate your conscience. I mentioned that before, Romans 14, 22. Here's the verse. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because he does not eat from faith, for whatever is not from faith is sin. What carefulness this speaks of about our conscience. It shows contempt for God to do something that you think even might be displeasing to him and that will destroy your sensitivity to God's will it will harden you and make you dull in your obedience and in your walk if God seems far away from you and if God's will doesn't seem very important to you you need to check and see if you have been violating your conscience if this is so it isn't your violated conscience crying out to you about that even right now as I speak Well, then listen to it. Listen to what the conscience is saying. Resolve that henceforth you will do as Paul. That you will strive always to have a conscience without offense before God and before men. Resolve that you will treat your conscience as a good friend instead of ignoring it and trampling it and driving it away. And besides that, you need to treat your conscience well by giving it proper nourishment and exercise. You need to feed your conscience with the word of God. That's the nourishment. Sin has blinded us all. 
I already spoke about how Jesus told his disciples that some of them would be opposed by people that would actually think that they were serving God, that they were doing right. God has graciously given us his word so that we might know his will, so that our consciences will not be wrongly informed. His word works with his spirit to convict us of sin and to show us the way that pleases the Lord so our consciences can be properly informed. Paul often speaks of how he prays for believers to have a proper understanding of what God wants of them. For example, he tells the Colossians what he and his companions did when they heard about their conversion. Colossians 1.9, he says, For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, heard about how you've come to faith, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. But if you ignore the word, either not reading it or by reading it in just a, a careless, perfunctory way, thoughtless way, you will not be able to discern right or wrong. Be like David in Psalm 119, crying out for wisdom from God's word. You also, besides feeding your conscience, you need to exercise your conscience. If it has gone to sleep, you need to wake it up and give it some exercise, put it to work. What do I mean by that? I mean that you need to ask your conscience what you ought to do. When your conscience is sleeping, you, you just do stuff without stopping to consider if it's pleasing to the Lord or not. In other words, think about what you're doing and whether what you're doing is right or wrong. Ask your conscience. In Romans 13, 11, Paul says, Now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Doesn't that happen sometimes that we sleep? We just, we just morally go to sleep and we're not paying any attention of what we're doing? He says, The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Once your conscience starts receiving the right kind of food and exercise, it will grow more and more proficient in helping you serve God. Hebrews 5.13 says, For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who, by reason of use, have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. So there's a dynamic of receiving the word and then doing the word that exercises and strengthens our conscience. The Lord has redeemed us. He's brought us into our, his house. And what could be more important than to have a conscience that's trained in his law and his gracious holy will so that we can live for his honor and glory. But I need to warn you about what will happen if you really start listening to your conscience and training it in God's ways. It will not be at peace with you. Once it is informed by God's word, it's, not, it's going to find fault with you. So be ready for that. If you do this, your conscience is going to start pointing to things. I read an account from Pastor's Journal, and the same one I told you about before, in which a woman denied that she had a sinful nature. Some of you have heard me tell you about this before. She didn't accept God's law. So uh, the pastor challenged her. He said, okay, well, you've got your own conscience. 
he said, see, just, just follow your conscience for, uh, for a couple of weeks and then, and then come back and talk to me about it again. Would you be willing to do that? And she agreed. He said, uh, refrain from what your conscience forbids and do what it tells you to do and something like that. So she agreed to do so and she returned to him and she agreed that she was a sinner. She had said before that that she was no sinner. And just by her own conscience, when she tried to do it for two weeks, didn't go so well. She then began listening to God's word, and she saw that she was such a sinner that she needed to be saved. And she soon saw that the only one who could save her was Jesus, the Son of God, who died on the cross. And she became a Christian. We're all sinners. So if we honestly listen to our consciences, we will see our sin. And if we listen to God's law, we will see it much more clearly. As even Paul said when throughout his life that though he sought to do good, that evil was present with him. Listen to what he says in Romans seven twenty one through 24. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. So I have this, within me, I have this love for, for God's law and a delight in the law of God, and I know that's the right thing to do and the way to go, but then I find that I go and do sinful things. Oh, wretched man that I am, he says, who will deliver me from this body of death? He's describing his, his body as like a, a rotting corpse that, that he's, he's carrying around with him. And he wants to be, why do I keep doing these sinful things? He wants to be delivered from that. Now you will find it the same for you as you follow your conscience and exercise it and learn of God's law. So how can you know that, or, or how can we know that we break, sorry, how can we who know that we break God's law have peace of conscience? How can we who know that we break God's law have peace of conscience? Come to Jesus Christ. Paul answers his own question in Romans seven twenty one and 24. O wretched man I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Right after he asks that question, he says in verse 25, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There are two things that Jesus does that give us peace of conscience when we come to him with a guilty conscience. Paul mentions them in the next two verses. In Romans 8, okay, going into the next chapter, Romans 8, 1 and 2. First he says that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That's talking about the pardon that we receive when we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. The complete forgiveness of sins that we've talked about before with justification and such. The blood that he shed on the cross is the blood of the new covenant that he shed for the remission of sins. The forgiveness of sin. If you come to him for forgiveness, then you'll be fully pardoned. And your conscience will be set free. He is our high priest. And in Hebrews 10, 21 through 22, it says, And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So that's the first thing. 
The second thing Jesus does is to set us free from bondage to sin so that we're able to serve God. Romans 8, 1 and 2 continues. After telling us that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, it describes us as those who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Jesus sets us free so that we can serve God as our master. We're no longer doomed to die, but now we're set free to live for God forever. When we studied about sanctification, we saw that in this life we're not perfected, but we're on the road to perfection. We are training for perfection. God the Father has brought us into his house, and he is teaching us how to live in his house. It is these things that make our conscience very happy and that give our conscience true peace. We can serve God and we can do what is pleasing to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Whenever we sin, we can immediately deal with it. We can confess our sin to the Lord and he will forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we do that whenever we sin, our conscience will be at peace. If you live in sin, there will be no peace for your conscience. But if you continue in Christ, you'll be like Paul and you'll serve God. As he says in 2 Timothy 1.3, with a pure conscience. What a great blessing it is to have a pure conscience. To have a conscience without offense. It sets you free from the dread and terrors of hell. If you have ever known what it is to be truly convicted of your sin and to feel the terrors of hell with its gaping jaws in your conscience, to grasp the vileness of your wickedness in addition to that, you know how liberating it is to be set free by faith in Jesus. It is to be set free, as Paul said, from this body of death, this rotting corpse that would drag us down to hell. What a blessing to be rescued that we may serve God. And I tell you that peace of conscience is also a blessing because it gives you courage before your enemies. If you serve Christ, those who do not serve him will if you serve Christ, those who do not serve him will oppose you. They will accuse you. They will tell you that you are wicked. But if you have peace of conscience, you will not be condemned by their words because you know within that you are serving Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 4:3, Paul says that those who try to condemn of, of those that try to condemn him, but with me, he says, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I know nothing against myself. In other words, I have a pure conscience. Yet I am not justified by this, but he who judges me is the Lord. He is serving God with a pure conscience the way his forefathers did. So he says, it's a very trivial thing if you think I did something wrong. And you're telling me that I did these things that were wrong because my conscience before God is not defiled. It gives him boldness. This freedom from a guilty conscience lets you get on in joyful service to God. Guilt is a stifling, it's a crippling thing. It paralyzes you. It, wants to, it makes you want to avoid God instead of turning an open face to God. You want to hide from him the way Adam did in the garden. 
You're busy trying to hide and to cover up and to justify and make excuses and, instead of busy serving him and drawing near to him. You're, you're full of evasion. You're full of garbage. So I say, if things are sluggish in your walk with the Lord, tell Jesus right now that you're coming back to him for forgiveness and grace so that you can serve God with a pure conscience again. Tell him that from now on, by his grace, you're going to always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. Really, wouldn't you be far better off if you simply did this? Why be at war within yourself? There is no need of it. Jesus Christ is our Savior and he delivers us. Please stand and let's call on the Lord. Gracious Heavenly Father, how I pray that you would help us that we might have a conscience that is void of offense before you and before men. Lord, we know that this is a a way to live that a Christian can live. Yes, we will do things that violate our conscience, but if we deal with those things, if we repent, if we come to you and we ask forgiveness, then our conscience will be set free again. It will not be accusing us because Jesus' blood cleanses us from our sin. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to walk in this happy way. Oh, Lord, truly, this is what those who are counted in your word, there are many people in the Bible that are said to be blameless. It certainly does not mean that they are without sin like only our Lord Jesus was. But it means that they simply deal with their sin consistently, that they don't live in sin. They don't live in ways that they know are displeasing to you. They don't continue to do things that they know are displeasing to you, that whenever they fall into sin, they get back up on their feet in the sense that you deliver them and they cry out to you. And they look to you to restore them and to set them on the pathway again of service to you. We thank you, O Lord, that even if we come to you many times with our sins, that we can continue to do so and you will receive us. We pray, O Lord, that you would deliver us from all hypocrisy and that you would make us honest, not only in what we say to other people, but also within ourselves, that we would be true to our own conscience. Father, we thank you that you have given us a conscience. And that when we come to Jesus Christ, that indeed one of the benefits that we can have, that we could never have without him, is peace of conscience when we are redeemed by him. Oh Lord, then have mercy on us and help us to have this benefit. We ask you last week to help us to have assurance of your love. And we pray now also that we would have peace of conscience. Father, these are truly wonderful benefits that are ours in this life. And we thank you that as those who are in Christ Jesus, that they will be all the more ours in the life to come. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's sing a song related to this. It's uh, 26A. 26A. May the Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father, who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. Amen.